We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses, what verses are we doing, Bill? 5 to 14. I changed my mind early on this morning, you see that thing. There you are. They will appear on the screen behind you, um, behind me even, it's in front of you. Um, we are going to just read through it. I'm going to keep Bill on his toes this morning. I told Bill, you're going to have to listen this morning, I'm afraid. Um, we're going to read through it because I think actually, in, in, despite what I might say, this is the important thing you need to hear this morning. So, you can be sure, I was going to say, I should really read this in the old, in the King James in a really broad Scottish accent. Sounds much more threatening. You know? You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person. Sorry, but I'm not going to do that. An angel spoke to me just there. I heard it audibly. <clears throat> Sorry. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let that hang for a minute. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now... You have light from the Lord, so live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It's shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. If we can just go back to the beginning of that, please, Bill. Okay, that doesn't sound particularly chirpy, some of it, at any rate. Paul gets a bit of a bad press. Um, just as a very, very brief recap, he was writing this to a very young church in a place called Ephesus, which still exists, it's in Turkey. People go there for their holidays. Um, and he was in jail. So he was kind of pressurized to get to the point. So he doesn't mess around, he just goes straight to it. And at first glance, it does sound a bit kind of difficult. Sounds like a, a bit tough. Now, what I want you to pay a close attention to is that what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, if you do these things, verse 5, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying that if you do these things, and who hasn't, or won't, again, Okay, so let's be quite clear about this. This is not something that you've got to get straight and perfect. He doesn't say if you, do, if you do these things, you're not a Christian, or you can't be a Christian. That God somehow or other will stop loving you because you've done these things. That you won't go to heaven. If you look elsewhere at what Paul writes about grace. Now, grace, blimey, we could be here for the rest of my life talking about grace. But Paul talks in Romans 5 about grace. Grace, if you don't know, is basically the mercy of God expressed in forgiveness and reward, even though you don't deserve it. And that in itself is, that's a lifetime's work, just trying to get your head around what that means. So Paul talking about grace. Messing up, this is really important because we all mess up and sometimes we give ourselves a huge hard time about the things we mess up with. And fair enough, that's kind of logical. But messing up does not exclude you from the kingdom of God. 
Right? The kingdom of God is not an exclusive regime for perfect people because there would only be one person there. Right? But the kingdom of God is here and it's now and we are in it. So, the conditions that Paul's talking about here must mean something else. What does he mean? Now, you've got to look down the verse a little bit. Let's look to the second half of verse 5. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. And I think that is key to how you can square the kind of first part of this sentence with the second part of this sentence. How you can say, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. How can you reconcile that with grace and forgiveness and mercy? Because Paul talks all about that. The best way to square that is what Paul says here about sin. What he also says elsewhere about grace is this. If these sins define who you are and the love of doing them is what you worship and what you live for instead of love and worship of God, then you are in effect excluding yourself from the kingdom of God. Basically saying, I don't want to be there. You've swapped allegiance from the king of kings to the mean little gods of petty little grubby things. It's the Garden of Eden all over again. Same choice. Get out of this. This is nicer. And I think if we look in our hearts, we've all been there. We've all said things. I'd rather do this than love God. I'd rather do this than obey God. I'd rather be whatever with this person doing this, whatever it is. And it seems the Ephesians were just like us. They could be conned into thinking that these petty little grubby things were actually good, preferable, the right thing to do. And it says, don't be fooled, don't do those things, it doesn't end well. So you might think, that's it, we're screwed. How do we do it? How do we work out what's really God and what's just another petty little grubby thing? And Paul starts to turn it around. He reminds us of what we are and what we were. Can we go on to the next slide, please, Bill? For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. Now, if that's not the antidote to what you've just heard, you know, think about that. There's doom, there's gloom, there's, there's an old Scottish man reading the King James to you, and all of a sudden, wow, for once, it's like the clouds just parted, like the beginning of The Simpsons. And now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of light. I like that people of light. I mean, wouldn't it, and that would be good on Instagram. Now, I said last time I spoke here, I said something which I was kind of unjustifiably proud of. Um, and I said, that would look really good on Instagram. I got home, and your man here, I'd stuck it up on Instagram next to a picture of me looking like me, um, which was not really what I intended, but thank you. Um, but I love this. Live as people as light. You can see that all over Instagram, your handwritten calligraphy little cards and mugs and T-shirts. We are the people of light. I'm a person of light. No, it's, it's, it sounds good. No, it's a great a people of light. And you think, I am a person of light. I will go along being light. I'm a person of light. And you think, ah, oh, it's brilliant. What does it mean? Yeah. Um, it means we're bright, jolly. I don't know. And, it, and it, you, you read things like this. And the Bible is full of metaphor that sounds brilliant, but you never always 100% sure what it actually means. What does it mean on a Monday morning when you get out of bed looking forward? to go into work, to be a person of light, when maybe you're just a person of gloom. I know I am. So, Paul explains that light produces, this is the other bit, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. 
And I love these kind of lists in the Bible. The Bible, Paul particularly writes lists of attributes. Sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're good. This is one of the good ones. Good, right, and true. So if the light that within us produces things that are good and right and true. And there are other lists like in Galatians where Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit being kindness and gentleness and self-control and all these kind of things. So it's becoming quite clear that maybe the light that was within us is the Holy Spirit. So actually when we say we're people of light, we're actually people of the Spirit. We're actually people of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit. Now that makes a bit more sense. We can get our head around that. We're not just kind of day glow. We're not like Ready Break people. Remember Ready Break? Remember the Ready Break adverts which stopped suddenly after Chernobyl? <laughs> you have to be of a certain age to understand that. Ask your parents when you go home. What's Ready Break? What's Chernobyl? But everybody glowed in the dark because they were warmed up from the inside. And then, well, sheep started to glow in the dark after Chernobyl and we thought, oh, maybe not. But when you think about being people of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit that comes out of you. It's the spirit that has good, right, and true in your life. All of a sudden, that makes a bit more sense. It becomes a practical thing. I can do good, right, and true, or at least I can try. And with the Holy Spirit's help, I can get there. Maybe more often than not. Who knows? So, Paul then goes on to be practical. And I think being practical, I'm, I'm very big on practical. I, I like the big ideas of faith, but if it doesn't make a difference to me tomorrow morning, then it's just, you know, it's just nice words. It's got to be real, you know, and the person that you are when you're here listening has got to be the same person equipped and ready to deal with tomorrow morning. And if your faith doesn't equip you to deal with tomorrow morning, then you need to have a look a bit bit closer. Because it's all about Monday mornings, really, not Sunday. Sunday's easy, Monday morning's hard. So, how do you tell the difference between the good, the right, and true, and the petty little grubby things? I love this next verse. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Now we talked about on Wednesday mornings at half past seven till nine o'clock in the morning, there is a prayer meeting that meets downstairs called the engine room. Um, and we talked a little bit about that this, this week. Uh, and you'd all be very welcome. You get fed and coffee as well. So please drop in, even if it's just for five minutes for a cup of coffee and a blessing. Uh, we'd love to see you. But anyway, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Because I think we're all very good at carelessly determining what pleases the Lord. We're very good about thinking, oh, God, like that. And off we go. But I love this idea of carefully determining what pleases the Lord. Don't just rush into it. Have a bit of a think before you think, what will God like me to do today? And we talked on Wednesday about putting a smile on God's face. About God being, having a blank fridge. And he's just desperate for people to run up to him with their grubby little um, painty pictures that you don't know which way is up. And God looks and goes, you made this for me! (laughs) And sticks it on his fridge and it drips all the way down and it's messy and no one has a clue what it is. But God loves it because you made it. Oh, I like that. Because that's, I think that's where we're always going to be. You know, our, our best endeavours are always going to be dribbly fingerprint, fingerprints in God's fridge. It's the best we're ever going to manage. But he loves us anyway. I think it's amazing. Right, sorry, I digress. So, carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Now, when I was looking through this, I desperately hunted around for other versions of the Bible that didn't use the word expose them. And actually, it's living, the NLT, the one we use here, it's about the only one that actually uses that word. Most other words kind of fudge around about it a wee bit. But I thought, no, this is the one we're going to go. This is the one that God said, read it from. So we're going to look at exposing things. Now, I don't know about you, uh, I love crime dramas. I read them, I watch them on the telly. If they're foreign with subtitles, I'm in heaven. 
I don't know what it is about foreigners killing one another. It's much more fun than watching British or American people do it. Being, being killed in a foreign language is far preferable to being you know, with subtitles. Being killed in, in English, it must be. I don't know what it is. I love watching them. With char- uh, BBC Four, Saturday nights, amazing programmes. Anyway, you know the CSI guys? They used to be called SOCO. Now we call them CSI, thanks to the Americans. In Britain, they'll go into a crime scene covered in head to toe in plastic bags. They've got them on their feet. They've got them full body plastic bag, one on their head, and they're all gloved up. Yet in America, when you see them going into a crime scene, they go in like they've just come out of the hairdressers, and they've all got long, lovely hair, and they kind of go... I know that I'm not really equipped for that kind of thing, but you ha- use your imagination. I am tossing my enormous mane... dandruff and DNA flying in every single direction and that doesn't apparently harm the chain of custody in America and Britain we're all bagged up anyway but you'll notice when they go into a crime scene and it might not be that dark but it nearly always is because bad stuff happens at night and they go in and they have these tiny little torches and they go into a crime scene and you see them and they they have these tiny little pin prick torches oh there's something there I've seen something down here Oh, oh, what's that? Oh, ah, they get the tweezers out of the wee plastic bag and they put it in and go, ha ha And then later on, that's a crucial piece of evidence. Now, I've always wondered, why don't you just turn the light on? It's so much simpler, you know, just kind of go, you know, they're all going to be torches and the copper comes in and goes, that better. There you go, you see what you're doing now. Um, and it wasn't until uh, sort of autumn time one year, I was sitting in our back room um, and the sun was setting very low in the sky, and it, and it was casting very, very low shadows across the floor. And I looked underneath our sideboard, and I thought, oh dear, it's like the surface of the moon. And you know, if you really want to know how dirty your, your house is, get a tiny little torch, get down really, really low. Everything gets thrown into relief. Biscuit, crumbs, cat, fluff, you name it. It was all there. And it looked like it was about four foot tall. And I was saying, have we ever cleaned our house? What, what does our hoover do? Does it just make a noise? And then, of course, the sun moves up round and it all looks clean again. It's, I, I'm not... I'm, my wife, I, I think, is, is assuming some kind of blame here. There, there is absolutely none given, dear. <coughs> Moving quickly on. But I think some people, some people think that's what this verse means. You get your nasty, sharp, bright little light and you creep into all the nooks and crannies of other people's lives and you find all that bad stuff and you make it look even worse than it actually is. Got a bit Scottish there again, I do apologise. Well, I just don't want people thinking that Scottish means nasty. You know, but maybe that's not. Uh, anyway, stop interrupting. I've lost my thread again. Hang on. I should stop interrupting myself. That's the biggest problem. Yeah. So I think a lot of people might get the idea that that's what this verse means. But it means about exposing things. But it means shining a really bright light and, and embarrassing people, humiliating them, showing them the dirt and the crud and all the horrible stuff that's underneath the sideboard of their life. If you'll pardon the rather daft metaphor. And they seem to think that they've got some God-given right to do that, to drag people into the daylight and accuse them of stuff and say, see? Now that, again, reminds me of something Jesus did. It's very, very important. Here's something I should have said right at the beginning. When we started looking at the beginning of chapter 5, two weeks ago, 
the whole idea was imitate God. How do you imitate God? You follow the example of Jesus. So in everything we are talking about this week, we are still trying to follow the example of Jesus. So when I heard about or read that bit about exposing people, I immediately thought of the woman who was caught in adultery, being dragged into the light. I always wonder why it was just the woman that was caught in adultery. Did the man just run quicker? Or perhaps there's a double standard at play. Anyway, this poor woman gets dragged into the glare of publicity in the main street or wherever it was, the square. And Jesus says, he said, Gotcha, you wee sinner. Let this be a warning to the rest of you of what happens. Anybody got a rock? Actually, he didn't say that. Now, I'm going to say this, but I have to quote it because it's from memory in the authorised version, because that's what I grew up remembering. He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He basically said, right, okay, if you think you're all so perfect that you've done nothing wrong, any one of you who is perfect and has never done anything wrong, feel free. I'll even give you a rock. Off you go. And as you know, basically, people just went away. I love that. And they just went away. They basically just dropped the stones and went away. Tail between the legs. They realised they had, didn't have a, a moral ground to stand on. They just went away. But he said, go and sin no more. That's tough. Okay, yeah, I'm not judging you. I'm not going to throw a rock at you. I'm not condemning you for what you've done. But go and sin no more. Do you think that woman never did anything wrong ever again? I reckon in that situation, if I'd been sort of brought out there and shown mercy and love like that, I'd have been pretty good for a couple of days at least. I'd have remembered to brush my teeth before I went to bed, all sorts of stuff. But then I would have just slipped. You know, I would just have started doing bad stuff again, because that's what we do, we're human beings. And sometimes it's almost impossible to resist. But Jesus knew this person would not be perfect. Jesus didn't say that to this woman, go and sin no more, on the understanding that she would then be sinless for the rest of her life. There was only one sinless person there. There was only one person there who had any right at all to pick up a rock. And he didn't. So, what does it mean then to expose the bad stuff, but not cast the first stone? Now, we're not to ignore bad stuff. We can't just pretend it doesn't happen. We can't just let people get away with doing horrible things. We have to do something. But if we're not supposed to cast the first stone, then what do we do? And I'm not necessarily saying I have all the answers to that one. But remember, we are still imitating God. We are still trying to follow the example of God. It must mean, yes, it must possibly mean, probably definitely has to, to confront people. But with a heart full of love. And not in public. The light of God is not to be confused with the glare of publicity. That's your Instagram moment. <clears throat> I was going to say that again. The light of God is not to be confused with the glare of publicity. And I think we sometimes get that muddled up. That somehow or other we have to bring stuff up and show the rest of the world how bad somebody is. That's not what it means at all. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. We bring people into the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the light that does the exposing. Now, in traditional evangelical churches, the big job of the Holy Spirit, if you're like me and you've been brought up in this since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, you'll have heard it a million times. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin. Or growing up in Glasgow, it's to convict you of sin. 
sounds so much scarier that way, doesn't it? Maybe that's why people will avoid me when I'm loud. Anyway, um, and that word conviction is a difficult word because we tend to think of conviction in terms of a legal system. You've been convicted. You have been judged, tried, sentenced, convicted to X amount of days in jail or whatever. And that's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean that. It means to convict you. It means to convince you. It's the same word. It means to lay something in your heart that says, I am not doing the right thing. I am not living the best way. There's got to be another way that is better for me, my eternal destiny, but for the people that I live and work and love alongside. That's what I'm being convicted of. We used to hear about conviction politicians. Sadly, not as much as we used to. But that's what it is. It's about changing somebody's heart. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about exposing people to the light, that's what we're doing. We're letting the Holy Spirit get into their hearts and changing them. It's an amazing thing. And it's not judgmental. It's not about finding fault. It's not about looking for people who are doing something wrong and dragging them into the glaze of publicity to punish them. It's about introducing them to a God and a Heavenly Father and a Spirit who will convict them that there is a better way. That light will become a beacon to their path to show them the best way, the best way to live, the best things to do, the way that you can live that will really, really honour God. And it brings life. It's like we've been sleeping in a dark fog of petty little grubby things. And suddenly you're jolted awake, like rising from the dead. Christ will give you light. I was, I was trying to figure out for days, what does Paul mean? Why does he suddenly quote something? Now, I have no idea what it is he's quoting. I presume I could have Googled it and probably found out. It sounds like a song. Um, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will give you light. And I couldn't really see the connection between that bit at the end of this verse and what had come before until I was just talking it through in my head with Jesus and it kind of suddenly started to make sense. When we live without the light, we are in the darkness. It's like being asleep. It's like being half awake. You know those horrible, weird dreams you get when you're not quite awake and you're not entirely sure if that noise you heard was the alarm or just something in your dream and, and, and real life and uh, you know, your dreams all get muddled up and it's a bit distressing sometimes. And then all of a sudden you are properly awake. And if it's a beautiful morning and the sun's streaming in the window, it feels fabulous. And it's like you've been set free just for waking up. I think that's what Paul's meaning. The light makes everything visible. This is why it said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. That is just amazing. You need the Holy Spirit to give you that joy in your heart. We were talking about joy earlier on this morning. You can't do this on your own. You can't find that deep-seated joy in every circumstance of life just by trying really hard, just by working at it, just by practicing. It's not going to happen. You're just going to fake it all the time. But the Holy Spirit can bring you that deep-seated joy. And you can become like a ready break kid. I love ready break children. I know it's kind of probably not the right thing to talk about anymore. But these ready break kids just were a glow. And everywhere they went, they just glowed. And the light that was within them, the warmth and the light just radiated. It's such a good testimony to what the church was supposed to be. When we get together, we become really, really, really bright. But when we separate and we scatter, we've got all these little pinpoints of brightness 
all around the cities, all around the towns where we live in, taking that light. It's amazing. Now, while we were worshipping, I was, I was meant to stop right there, but while we were worshipping, there was something that came to me. Um, I said two weeks ago that the last thing I wanted anyone to do when they came and heard me talking about this was to go away feeling guilty. Because this is not, I mean, because everybody's done something wrong. We've all done something stupid. We're all doing daft things. We will go home today and do something stupid and things that we regret. Okay? I can promise you that. All of us. So this is not to add anything to that particular process. This is to remind us of the hope that we have and the light that we carry. But I just got the impression when we were worshipping earlier on and we were talking about releasing chains that I think some people are stuck in judgment. And I'm not talking about judgment of other people. Because I'm not here to lay a guilt trip particularly. But I think some of us are very, very critical of ourselves. And I just, I just felt that really quite strongly this morning. That people were thinking, it's me. I'm the problem. I'm what's wrong with my life. I do this. I do that. Now, I suffer from anxiety. And I worry about things I that are fictitious. If I haven't got a real thing to worry about, my brain will conjure up something else and I'll dream about worrying about stuff that doesn't even exist. I used to be a teacher. I still have dreams where I worry about not having lessons planned for tomorrow. I used to work in a very deadline-driven graphic design business and I, I wake up in the middle of the night worried about work that I've not finished that's going to be late. I don't do any of those things anymore. But I still worry. I still judge myself. And I think there are other people here like me who are judging themselves, and they keep thinking, one of these days someone's going to find me out. Interestingly enough, now this, I really wasn't meaning to talk about this, but about three weeks ago, I got an email from somebody, um, an unknown person, congratulating me on the fact that he had hacked my computer, my website, whatever it was, and telling me that he was going to expose me and my internet history to the world unless I gave him bitcoins. Yeah. <laughs> he was on to plums there because I have no idea how to do that. Anyway, um, th this person apparently had hijacked my webcam, had seen me doing horrible things, um, and was going to take these videos and show them to all my friends and family who he knew. And he sent it to me from my own email account, which is why it slightly bothered me. Not that there was anything that he might send to people, but I'm not 100% sure that my internet history would be absolutely what I would want anyone else to see. But it was just the fact that he hijacked my account, which worried me slightly. And I suddenly started to review in my head, what have I done? What have I done? And I started just basically to filter through my life. Now that, for somebody who suffers from anxiety, is like the mother load. It really is. It's just like an endless stream and seam of classic things to worry about. What have I done on the internet for the last three weeks? Well, in fact, it's since July, apparently, was when it started. You know, and you were trying to... I'm just going, what's that? And I went through it and through it and through it and through it and through it. And I thought, no, there's nothing that's sufficient. And it was. It was just a scam. Right, so if you get one of those things, don't worry, it's a scam. I asked my son. He does that kind of thing for a living. He says, it's a scam, Dad, don't worry. Unless, of course, you have been doing it. No, no. Um, but that kind of self-judgment, that kind of approach where you basically go through your own life with a filter, God's not doing that to you, so why should you do it to yourself? God is not looking at your life with one of those mean, horrible, little, really, really bright lights, looking at all the dirty bits. And yet we do that to ourselves all the time. 
I do it to me all the time. I'm not good enough. I can't possibly be that person that people talk about when they talk about me. I can't possibly be deserving of what God has done for me. His sacrifice, his love, his redemption, his justification, his sanctification, his hope in heaven, his light in my life. I can't possibly be good enough for that because look at all the stuff I've done. If that's you, every chain is broken, even the ones we wrap ourselves up in. Sometimes it's very easy to break through the chains that other people wrap us up in. That's fine because we know they're wrong. The ones we've basically done the Houdini trick with and we've chained ourselves up and we've put on cufflinks and cufflinks, handcuffs, cufflinks if you want to be smart and chained. Um, <laughs> all of that kind of thing. Those are the ones that are sometimes hardest to break. If you need somebody to pray with, you know, we've done prayer ministry already, but find somebody to talk to about that because you are set free already 